Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. When's the last time you sought out news about Afghanistan in the wake of the withdrawal? Or wondered, what's going on in Iraq? Americans generally have short attention spans. Author Phil Cly has a personal connection to this period of lengthy wars. He served in Iraq as a U.S. Marine Corps officer. Today, he's an author. His latest book, Missionaries, is fiction, but it focuses on America's military power across the globe and how it has transformed warfare. His first collection of short stories called Redeployment earned him a National Book Award in 2014. Phil Cly joins us for the hour on Zoom. Phil, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. This is Veterans Day, and so we appreciate uh, the time you're giving us today as a veteran. Can I ask how you typically spend this day? <laughs> well, you know, I have I have kids. I have three small kids, so now I spend Veterans Day with them. Um, and, you know, uh, yesterday was the Marine Corps birthday. I took the kids out biking, and we biked to... Uh, there's a you know memorial uh, nearby where we live, a sort of local memorial, uh, and we talked a little bit about family members who had served and and why they did that. Mm. You know, I was um, looking at Twitter this morning, and there's a, a veteran in Connecticut that I know pretty well, and and he served in Afghanistan, and he wrote, "Less than one percent of my generation has served," so he's in his thirties. Most people I know, I'm the only veteran they know, but 65% of the people over 65 have served. It was a shared experience. And he writes, now it's a lonely one. Have you ever felt that way, Phil? Yeah, I, I do understand that. You know, and it, in many ways, it depends on where you are. Um, and I think for a lot of veterans when they get out it's complicated trying to sort of you know build a new tribe around yourself um and especially i think people feel that as they you know when they're things like you know like the fall of Kabul, they feel extremely intense for for veterans and um and you know do connect to the broader public but maybe not not so much in the same way uh you know, I, I do have a friend who, you know, I've spent a long time feeling very isolated in that regard. And, you know, one of the things that he said to me, he's been working on refugee resettlement. Um, and he realized, oh, like, there are actually a, a broad number of Americans who do care about the wars. It's just that for a long time, we've had leadership that hasn't wanted people to think about them uh, or do anything about them. And so... It gave him, I think, or he felt like he had had sort of more of a sense of alienation uh, than maybe he needed. <laughs> um, because I think a lot of times there are people who are interested, but they don't know how to start the conversation. Um, they don't know how to connect. Um, and yeah, there's just a sort of gulf of understanding, but that's always going to be there. 
If you're a veteran, we'd love to hear from you this hour, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. You know, I brought up that uh, that point because uh, we know through your writing, uh, first with redeployment and even now with missionaries, you, know, you do confront that disconnect between public perception and the reality of America's mm-hmm. wars. So talk more about uh, when you were writing redeployment, you know, what were you thinking about and what did you want to convey? You know, I mean, the, everybody's war is so particular, right? I was a public affairs officer, so I was a, a staff officer. But because of the nature of my job, I got to spend time with a lot of different types of Marines, a lot of different uh, soldiers and sailors as well. And so, you know, uh, it's not just that I was able to go out on patrols with infantry guys, but I'd spend time with medics, I'd spend time with mortuary affairs guys, right? The guys whose job it is to recover the remains of the dead and send them home. Uh, I spent time with support staff and, 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 and engineers. And so I got this, you know, sort of broader sense of all the different things that people in the military are doing. And then when I came home, it was this very peculiar thing. Um, you know, I came home the first time I got two weeks of leave in the middle of my deployment. And as I said, I was a staff officer. I wasn't in, in anything especially intense, but I'd seen a Marine die. Um, at the uh, um, combat hospital uh, that was part of our unit uh, in in Takatum. And then, you know, a week later, I'm in New York, and it's a beautiful day, and people are walking by in beautiful clothes, and and there's no public sense that we're at war. And it felt just utterly bizarre to me because, of course, you know, what's happening here in America is, is... is ultimately, you know, we're the country that's sending people to war that is that is causing these things to happen overseas, and um, and and I just the, the the disconnect between those two worlds felt extremely intense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and, and the other thing that I noticed too was you would get sort of different responses to being um, to being a veteran. You know, early on, I get these very sort of macho conversations, feel like, "Oh, you're a marine, that's badass," whatever. And then um, later, increasingly, people would sort of assume that I was um, sort of, that I had PTSD. And by PTSD, they tended not to mean the sort of, I mean, you know, post-traumatic stress is a, it's an injury, right? It's a wound. It's a psychological wound with, you know, a set of symptoms. Uh, They tended not to be, you know, talking about that in in the kind of technical sense, but more there's a sort of general perception that, you know, uh, because I was in Iraq, that I might be broken in some way. Uh, somebody at the bar told me, uh, you know, all Iraq vets are going to snap after 10 years, right? Uh, and he didn't even say it mean, you know, in like a mean way. He just like, he felt I should know. I'd been back for three years, you know, had seven good ones left, apparently. Um, but uh, uh, that, that prediction didn't come true, obviously. Mm. Um, and so, you know, when you come back, from experience overseas, you've been a part of something that feels deeply personally important to you, that feels morally important, and also politically important because, you know, you're coming back to the society that sent you over, right? The political decisions that we make here um, really, really matter. And then you sort of get confronted with um, a lot of just the cultural garbage 
that people ingest about war, right? And, and, and often project on veterans. And it can be difficult then to, to, to figure out a way to actually have a, a genuine conversation, right? And veterans, you know, can sometimes be, be prickly and make the process harder as well. So since that time that you wrote Redeployment, I should mention again that that collection of short stories won a 2014 National Book Award for fiction. Uh, congratulations, uh, Phil. I know it's been Thank several you. years, but when you look back at that time, <laughs> I mean, your book definitely made an impact on a lot of people. I, I was incredibly lucky. And, um, you know, I mean, it's it's... It, it's extraordinary the responses that I've that I've had from people. You know, um, you write something like this, uh, and you very much hoping to connect with other people. Um, and there are there are ways in which you know I feel like it did, and and, and people have told me stories that, that were very meaningful. Right? Um, you know, I wanted to write the book as a way for you know for veterans to see different types of experiences reflected in it, but also for civilians to be able to have some sort of um, purchase on the experience to, to be able to talk about it. And um, and people have told me that, that that's helped them in that regard, and that's, that's deeply gratifying. Uh, when you were describing what you were feeling after coming back home and being in Manhattan and then looking at public perception today and in 2021, mm -hmm. especially looking at, you know, the recent news events in Afghanistan, you know, would you say that public perception has shifted when Americans think about veterans instead of putting them in that box and of, of generalized uh, of uh, descriptions of what a veteran or an active uh, duty service right. member is? I think I think I think it has. I think there's been a lot of veterans speaking up. Um, I think there's been a lot of very good work showing the kind of diversity and complexity of the veteran experience and the ways in which you know that experience continues to inform what people do in their civilian civilian lives. Sometimes in very good ways. Um, uh, there's a, a very good documentary on, that was just just run on uh, on PBS called American Veteran, uh, a series uh, uh, that I had. Uh, I was a I was a part of uh, that. I think did a good job showing that diversity. So I think that the the kind of intense and often politicized images of veterans um, have become you know they're still around certainly, but I don't think it's at quite the pitch that it was you know when I came back from the surge. The flip side of that, of course, is that you know when I came back from the surge in Iraq, war was a major political issue. Right. And I think one of the things that is complicated now is that, you know, we're fighting wars. We still have troops overseas. We're killing people. And yet war has totally disappeared from the public conversation. Right. And so in in some ways, it's like, well, do, you know, do I want more sort of politically pitched battles about war that tend to come with, um, you know, these highly politicized image of, images of veterans, uh, uh, you know, uh, do I want that, that world back in some ways? Because, you know, I feel like at least we're having a much more active political debate about what we're doing overseas and why. Mm. 
And the idea that Americans, uh, you know, aren't focused on these wars because of the way mm-hmm. wars are conducted today. You get into that in your in your latest book, uh, Missionaries, right, with the technology, with drone warfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, but before we get to that, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about the fall of Kabul because, you know, something that really struck me, um, you know, after thinking about the last two decades of Af- being in Afghanistan, uh, Americans' inv- involvement and also Iraq, um, when uh, there were Marines that were killed um, at that attack yeah. at, at the airport, reading their ages, 20 years old. And to think, like I thought to myself, this is a whole new generation now that we're talking about. Yeah. You know, <sighs> I, I, I <sighs> and the mission that they were doing, you know, it was just to save people, Right. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's, 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 it's incredible. I've, I've been, um, interviewing actually Afghans who didn't get out because, you know, there are just so many people who worked with the Americans, um, some cases risked their lives for Americans. You know, I was talking to, to one soldier, you know, who's been involved in trying to get people out. He said, you know, his interpreter He's in the States, but his family in Afghanistan. And he said, you know, this guy saved my life multiple times. Why would I ever stop doing what I can to help save his family? And I was talking to, um, you know, so there's, it's, it's, when that happened, I mean, it was just, it was crushing because it was this horrific situation where, you know, I feel like we as a country had really failed um, a lot of our allies, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't any surprise that there was going to be a disastrous evacuation effort necessary. Right. You know, I, I remember meeting with, with activists, uh, in May talking about how bad this was going to be. Right. And how we needed to prepare for it and how we weren't prepared for it. Um, and then that particular disaster, I think was the result of, uh, you know, not just, things that were done during the Biden administration, but years uh, of failure in terms of um, trying to get American allies out, right? I mean, the, our, our program for getting those folks out during the Trump years basically ground to a halt, right? And so we had this massive backlog. Um, you had people with real fear for their lives uh, trying to get through. And it, it, it you know, uh, led to an incredibly dangerous situation for, for very young Marines doing a very noble task. You're hearing Phil Cly here on Where We Live. Uh, he's an author of Missionaries, also the winner of the National Book Award for Redeployment, which was the collection of, of short stories that he wrote back in 2014. And he teaches creative writing in Fairfield University's MFA program. You can join us today as we talk about uh, his works, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Um, again, we're going to talk about missionaries coming up, but I, I wanted to ask you to to revisit some of those stories in redeployment. And I'm wondering if you could talk about one, money as a weapon system, when we think about American missions overseas and, and the significance of that title, Phil. Yeah. I mean, so that was actually a, that was actually the title of a, um, like military publication, M- money as a weapon system. <clears throat> and the idea was, and, and you know, that, in a counterinsurgency, you can't solve all your problems with violence, right? Ultimately, what you're trying to do with war is to create 
a new and stable political equilibrium, right? That is in your benefit, right? And so if the only thing that you do is violence, then the violence is never going to end, right? Because, you know, violence can rip up political structures, but not economic structures, but can't build them. And so what you want to do is while you're doing sort of, you know, suppression, while you're, you know, doing raids and taking out bad guys, you also want to be building up the local economy and government structures, right? <clears throat> and this is the idea of, of counterinsurgency theory is in part of counterinsurgency theory as we were trying to, you know, put it into effect in, in, in 2007, 2008, and, and years after. Um, at the same time, uh, a lot of these efforts, so in theory, that sounds very good. Um, a lot of these efforts sort of filtered through a bureaucratic process that was um, <clears throat> maybe not well organized for long-term wins led to total absurdity. And so, you know, that's a story about a guy who is trying to get like a water plant running. Uh, <clears throat> he's a foreign service officer working in one of these, these <clears throat> teams that were set up at the time uh, to do this kind of work. And he gets also tasked to try and teach Iraqis baseball um, because this, you know, donor to a congressman has this idea about how like base, baseball is the perfect, um, you know, democratic sport to teach the right kind of values. Uh, and so, you know, uh, if you teach them baseball, everything else is, is, is going to fall into place. So, you know, the funny thing about that book is that uh, that story is, you know, it's a comic story. It's a satirical story. Uh, I talk about a lot of the absurdities of things that, that, that were going on, but the process of doing research for that was utterly rage inducing because almost everything in, yeah, everything in that story is basically true. Right. Um, and every bit of insanity and waste, I mean, you know, if you read the, uh, the Special Inspector General for Reconstruction reports in both Iraq and, and Afghanistan, you find absolutely wild things that went on, you know, uh, spending hundreds of thousands of dollars on buildings that literally melted when it rained um, is one thing that, uh, that always stood out for me in Afghanistan. And, and you can go on to see photographs of buildings that literally, <laughs> literally melted in the rain, um, you know. And in the in the story, when we think about there was this uh, emphasis on the photo as evidence of progress. Can you talk about that shortly? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So what what he ultimately does is he meets this. So the foreign service officer, you know, is trying to fight the bureaucracy, right? Because he thinks that it's stupid. And he meets this uh, army major named Major Zima, who at first he thinks is an idiot. Um, but what he doesn't really understand is that. Major Zima is the kind of guy who he doesn't care if you think he's smart, right? Which the foreign service officer does. He just cares about getting results. So if there's an insane system that, you know, is going to prioritize doing silly, useless projects, um, but that, you know, if you buy into it, will also give you the leeway to do something that might be meaningful, Major Zima will lean into the stupid projects, right? Um, and he sort of learns over the course of the story 
to instead of trying to fight the system to like not along and subvert it and then uh you know try and do what you can that's actually meaningful and then you know create the right photo op to show that you're actually you know that you're doing the uh, the thing that the, the bureaucracy has decided that that you must be doing, uh, and so instead of teaching Iraqi kids baseball, <laughs> he just basically gets gets them to dress up in these uniforms so he can take a photo so it looks like they're playing baseball, um, and that will be you know that'll be success, and that will buy him the breathing room to do the things he actually feels are important. Mm. And there's symbolism there, right? What the U.S. military wanted us to see with the withdrawal. Phil? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the the amount of of utter BS that we've been told time and again. I mean, there's a there's a sort of satirical website called the Duffel Blog, which is kind of like the onion for for the military, and they used to run uh, this recurring headline. You know, it's like. 17th commander of troops in Afghanistan says we're turning the corner, corner, you know, and then the next guy comes in, it's the same headline, um, just with the number changed, right? Again, you're hearing Phil Cly here on Where We Live uh, talking about uh, a short collection of stories that he wrote several years ago called Redeployment. Uh, Coming up, we're going to talk about his latest book, Missionaries, and we hope you join us as well. Uh, If you're a veteran, if you've read some of Phil Cly's books, uh, we want to hear from you too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. It's Veterans Day, and my guest is a veteran. Phil Cly served in Iraq with the U.S. Marines. Today, he's an author and creative writing professor in Fairfield University's MFA program. Earlier, we were talking about his 2014 book, uh, National Book Award winner, Redeployment, a collection of stories focused on veterans and identity. 
Uh, last year, his first novel came out called Missionaries. Uh, before we get to that, I got a, a, a tweet from a listener, uh, Phil. Uh, Jim wants to know well, your thoughts on would having combat veterans in Congress make it less likely that the U.S. would go to war? <laughs> Not necessarily. Um, you know, uh, John McCain, for example, uh, despite having seen his fair share of war's horrors, uh, was not known as a dovish um, politician, right? I do think one thing that you do see from some members of Congress uh, on both sides of the aisle is more interest in military issues, more interest in congressional oversight in military issues, right? So, you know, this is Democrat and Republican um, uh who feel as though the congressional role in overseeing the military um, is, is not currently robust enough, right? Which I think is very true, right? We were still operating under the authorization for the use of military force that we passed in 2001. We're using it to kill groups that didn't exist in people in groups that didn't exist in 2001 or that have a very, very tenuous connection to, um, you know, to the groups that were responsible for, for 9-11. Uh, and we're operating under that, you know, all over the world without much debate about where we're killing people and why and, and what strategic uh, goals we have and whether or not we're achieving them. And I think that's a very dangerous place to be. And you do see, um, you know, uh, movement uh, among members of Congress who have served uh, to try and rein those things in um, uh, and to sort of restore congressional authority over war making, which would be, I think, an important first step in having more responsible and, and ultimately, I think, more effective military policy. You can join our conversation with Phil Cly, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, so let's get into missionaries. So uh, I just finished the book last night. I'm not going to lie. I had to put it down a few times, Phil, <laughs> uh, but I couldn't, but I really wanted to see how it ended. So it was well-written. Uh, but your book really connects the lives of four characters, starting in the Middle East and going all the way to Latin America. And then as readers are drawn in, we're learning how their stories are going to converge in Colombia. So this book felt like it had a, a different mission than uh, redeployment, <laughs> right? Why, why Colombia? Yeah. Talk us through that. An example of the reach of America's power? So, you know, the more that I thought about American wars, the more it became sort of insufficient to me to just talk about one. So there's a scene later in the book where I have a Colombian mercenary on an, uh, on an air base looking through a chi the optics of a Chinese drone, coordinating over Swedish communications technology to an Emirati pilot before he drops an American bomb on Yemeni tribesmen, right? And when you have stuff like that going on, right? That's not my fantasy, that's stuff that actually, you know, has happened. Um, you start to wonder, all right, how do we have this system in place, right? And that meant that I wasn't, I didn't want to just talk about Iraq. I didn't want to just talk about Afghanistan or Yemen, um, but a bunch of wars and how people and tactics and technology sort of migrate across borders, right? And Colombia was a perfect place. I mean, for one reason, my, my wife is Colombian American. It was easy to do research in Colombia while staying with family, which was great. Um, but also it's been the largest recipient of military aid in the Western hemisphere. Um, and we keep trying to sort of take lessons from Colombia and import them overseas 
over to the Middle East and then take lessons and things from the Middle East and bring them back to Colombia. So methods of, of high value targeting, targeted assassination, right? Which is very important to how we wage war now, uh, whether with drones or special operations troops. You know, some of those methods started in the hunt for Pablo Escobar. They were fined and brought to an industrial scale level in Iraq. And then that sort of system for killing people was brought back to Colombia when we helped the Colombians kill high-level um, communist guerrilla, right? Every ambassador to Colombia post 9-11 has gone on to sort of work in the war on terror in some regard. Two of our ambassadors to Colombia, their next post was to be the ambassador to Afghanistan. One of them later said, you know, we had, there was nowhere that we had more going on than Colombia, including Afghanistan. And so it seemed to me that it was the perfect place to look at this kind of intersection um, of, of people and tactics and military strategy and to see what that looked like, to see what that looked like from the American perspective, to see what it looked like from the perspective of the Colombian military, to people on the ground, um, and just sort of have a sort of, you know, look at the way that America does war now and how it's changing the world. One of the characters uh, is Abel, and you start the book uh, with uh, a story yeah. about him. Could you read a portion for us? Sure, sure. So this is just the beginning of the book, so you shouldn't need any, any context in it other than it's Abel. My town sat on top of a small hill by the side of a river whose banks held only sand. At noon, you had to walk quickly so as not to burn your feet. But when it rained, the river would overflow and turn our central street to mud. All us children would go out, slipping and pushing each other, playing in the mud before the sun baked it hard and the wind carried it away as dust. To talk about this part of my life is to talk about another person, like a person in a story, a boy with a father and mother and three sisters, one pretty, one smart, and one mean. A grandfather who drank too much and beat everyone at dominoes. A teacher who thought that boy had talent. A priest who thought he was wicked. Friends and classmates and enemies and girls he watched with increasing wonder. Like Imena, who had thick curly hair and fair skin and who got pregnant with the baby of one of the local guerrilleros. Most people think that a person is whatever you see before you. Walking around in bone and meat and blood. But that's an idiocy. Bone and meat and blood just exist. But to exist is not to live, and bone and meat and blood alone is not a person. A person is what happens when there is a family and a town, a place where you're known, where every person who knows you holds a small invisible mirror, and in each mirror, held by family and friends and enemies, is a different reflection. In one mirror, the sweet fat boy I was to my mother, in another, the little imp I was to my father, in another, the irritating brat I was to the father. A person is what happens when you gather all these reflections around a body. So what happens when one by one, the people holding those mirrors are taken from you? It's simple. The person dies and the bone and meat and blood goes on walking the earth as if the person still existed when God and the angels know he doesn't. So let's not talk about this boy as if he and I are the same person, not two strangers. One who walked in this body before the burning and one who did after. Let's talk about this boy whose memories and face I share as the dead child he is. We can call him Abelito. 
Again, you're hearing Phil Cly reading from his book, Missionaries, here on Where We Live. So readers go on to learn about the tragedy Abelito faces and how he becomes a bell, later a member of the paramilitary. You also write about Lizette, a war journalist. There's Mason, a special forces medic, mm-hmm. and then Juan Pablo, a member of the Colombian military. So talk about your decisions to bring these particular perspectives into yeah. this novel. One thing that I wanted was I wanted to talk about people for whom war is their career, right? So redeployment, not in all cases, but for most of the cases in redeployment, these are people who, you know, do one deployment and then get out, right? Um, They tend to be sort of younger people, right? And, you know, it's exploring, you know, that experience of somebody having this intense experience when they're young and, and, and coming back to America. But in this book, I wanted to deal with people, you know, for whom war was their career, right? It was their job. Um, a lot of times they're very good at it, right? Mason is a special forces guy. He has a lot of complicated feelings about how America is is using soldiers around the world. He, he thinks some missions are better than others. Um, he's sort of morally working through, but he likes it. He likes the work, right? Um, he likes the excitement of it. Um, and... I wanted, so I wanted to write about, you know, people for whom this was their career, right? And what it meant to them. Um, And then the other thing that I wanted to do was I wanted to show how this, you know, how modern war looks at kind of various different levels close to the ground. So, you know, the story that is um, kind of the classic story in TV and film, because it's very filmable, is the story of the special operations raid, right? There's a bad guy somewhere. You have a bunch of, you know, party American uh, uh, soldiers who are extremely lethal, you know, plan for the raid. They go, they do the raid, they kill the bad guy and then go home, right? That's a story with a neat beginning, middle and end. You know, we've done so many of those raids over the past 20 years and these wars are wars without a neat beginning, middle and end. So I have a raid in the middle of the book. It's based on a real raid that happened where the Colombian military found out that a drug lord had um, had special ordered a, a six-foot-tall teddy bear for his girlfriend, and they put a beacon in the teddy bear so they could track it to the party and then kill him at the birthday party. And instead of uh, you know that sort of being what the novel's leading up to, that's in the middle of the book, right? And so the consequences of something like that, you know, after you kill the the bad guy. Your special operations troops can go home. But what happens for the people in the region, right? Uh, and in this case, what's going to happen for Abel, who lives in the area where that you know, sort of drug lord was basically the, the main political authority? Well, it's not like the government comes in and then you have good governance in that region. Um, what you have instead is a power struggle, right? And a sort of new player comes in. So Abel is the person who, when there's violence, it's done. He's going to feel what it what is happening to the community around him, Right. And then sort of at a level up, you have the Colombian military officer, Juan Pablo, and he's the one who's sort of planning that particular raid. He's interested in the fate of Colombia, um, but, you know, he's planning these things from from far away uh, and has a sort of different set of interests. Then I have the American Mason who's, you know, <laughs> uh, has U.S. interests at heart, right, and is trying to think these things through in terms of, of American interests and American wars. And then sort of at the highest level, you have Lisette, who's a journalist who's trying to sort of get her hands around the whole thing and figure out what's going on. 
Uh, and so that's why it was structured in that way, you know, to have kind of narrators at different levels um, far away from sort of, you know, where the violence is done with, you know, varying levels of connection to the place where the violence is done, um, who are all sort of responding uh, to what's happened and whose kind of fates become entwined. And then through them, you can see, you know, them in Afghanistan, them in Iraq, them in Yemen, um, and how these things are connected. <laughs> mm-hmm. well, I want to talk more about uh, the violence that's portrayed in Missionaries in just a little bit. I mm-hmm. wonder, let our listeners know that they can read the first chapter of Missionaries on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Again, my guest is Phil Cly, who also teaches creative writing at Fairfield University's MFA program. Uh, before we get to that, uh, Denny's calling in from Connecticut. Denny, you had a question for Phil. Oh, yeah. Uh, and it's Veterans Day. Thank you for your service, Phil. I was a medic in uh, Vietnam, Thank you. Uh, six, 68 and 9. And I, uh, <clears throat> I just finished uh, Stanley Carnot's book, Vietnam and History. And it took me 30 years to read that. Uh, nonetheless, uh, I came away from that book with the distinct impression that uh, it, it was a template for Afghanistan and, uh, and history. Is it uh, a lesson? Is it good intentions are often overcome by greed and ego? I just, have you studied the Vietnam War in any uh, depth? And uh, can you see the comparison? Yeah, I can. You know, um, you know, when we were withdrawing from Afghanistan, there were people who wanted us to stay there who were saying things like, well, you know, um, you know, we can keep this stable. We can keep a small troop presence of, um, you know, 2,500 troops and we'll, you know, keep things stable and it won't really be a war. You know, like we kept, you know, we kept, uh, we kept troops in, in Germany and Korea and all these other places for, for that, that length of time. And that always seemed crazy to me. Right. I mean, you know, like it's not like it's not like Germany was 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 being surrounded by, you know, all the cities in Germany were being surrounded by Swabian rebels and shutting down beer halls and forcing everybody to wear lederhosen, right? And then we sent some troops in and they like calmed down and started making house music, right? Like no, like it was a much more stable situation um, there, and that's why we were able to keep troops there. Whereas to to me, Afghanistan, the most obvious example. Um, reference was Vietnam, right? And specifically, I was thinking about the Diem regime, which at the time was referred to as a a puppet regime with no strings, because it was both a regime with no real um, legitimacy among the Vietnamese, right? And limited ability to control what was happening outside, uh, out in the countryside. Um, But it also didn't do what we wanted it to, right? Uh, And that seemed to be, uh, you know, the government that we had propped up in in Afghanistan seemed to be an even more dysfunctional version of that, right? And so, you know, to me, we had created an image um, according to our own sort of like American ideas of how Afghanistan should be governed without much interest in the actual sort of local power structures uh, in Afghanistan and what made the most sense at that time for Afghans. And... And so, you know, 
we could have poured infinite resources into it and never would have been functional. I mean, we essentially did pour infinite resources into it um, and never created anything that was sort of uh, functional or had staying power, right? Uh, and so, yeah, uh, I certainly do see some of the parallels. You're hearing Phil Cly here on Where We Live, author of Redeployment, a National Book Award winner, winning book, also missionaries uh, that we're talking about right now. We'll continue talking right after a break. You can join us too. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. My guest today, Phil Cly, a National Book Award winner and veteran, also author of Redeployment and Missionaries, which we've been, we've been talking about the last uh, few minutes. Uh, uh, Phil, somehow the hour is almost up. The time has flown by. But I did want to ask you, as we talk about missionaries and how it's a, a work of fiction, but based on uh, some real life events, uh, when we when you were thinking about um, writing certain scenes that were particularly violent and, and how you thought through those decisions because, you, you know, there there is that term out there, uh, war porn and the sensationalization <laughs> of of uh, violence. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering, you know, like how you went about thinking about this as you were writing. Yeah. You know, some people, the, the book is violent and, um, and it should be. I mean, it's a, it's a war book. Um, you know, I think about something... Marlon James once talked, told me about uh, his book, The Brief History of Seven Killings, which is also a violent book. And he said, you know, people sometimes complain about the violence in that book, but it's not the violence that bothers people, right? Because Americans, we love violence, right? We can't get enough violence. It's suffering that causes us difficulty. And so when I'm writing about violence, I don't want it to ever simply be spectacle, right? Um, what's important to me about violence, and you sort of get the sense of it in that bit that I read from Abel, right? Which is, then there's a reason that that's the beginning of the book, is I'm interested not in the spectacle of violence, but, but you know, in what it does to people, what it does to their bodies, what it does to their communities, what it does to their souls, ultimately. And, and I think that's very important to depict. I think that's important to think about. Um, you know, and it is something that sometimes we do want to turn our eyes away from. And I try not to, um, you know, I try very hard not to be gratuitous, right. In, in, in the depiction of violence. Um, but if this was a book that didn't have any scenes that made the reader squirm a little bit, I think it would be a fundamentally dishonest book about war. Right. Uh, it made me squirm, especially uh, reading uh, the scene with Alma uh, um, uh, later oh. on in the book. And I think what you said about and, and, and not wanting to to hear or want pe- wanting people to suffer, right? That we that we tend, to, you know, that really bothers us. And thinking about you know war crimes and what happens to real people in war. I mean, that is also upsetting. Okay. It's just, yeah, that's a scene Alma where. 
uh, a former guerrilla is telling a story, sort of what happened to her, right? Um, uh, as part of the process of trying to get victims of violence, um, sort of government support. Um, but yeah, that's part of, partly the reason why I I did that scene that way of of a victim telling their story, right? Uh, and telling their story to, to as part of a bureaucratic process, <laughs> but sort of trying to insist on the individuality and, and 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 personal core of an experience of what what happened to her, right? Rather than just sort of showing it, uh, I wanted to show somebody struggling to get the words out. You've done a lot of research. Uh, six years it took you to write missionaries. I understand. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had mentioned that you're a National Book Award winner, but this book, Missionaries, uh, I believe was one of President Obama's favorite books of the year. <laughs> How did that make you feel? <laughs> it's, 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 it was very, very kind of him. Um, uh, he said kind things about both of my books, and I'm, I'm grateful. I feel bad because I only ever seem to criticize his military policy. But um, <laughs> Don't feel bad. <laughs> uh, I am deeply grateful for his, his literary sensibility and, and, and uh, you know, um, and, and uh, yeah, it's, it's very, very, I mean, it was, it was, it was amazing uh, that, that he did that. I also mentioned that you are a creative writing professor in Fairfield University's MFA program. Uh, Missionaries came out, I believe, last year, and you've got a, a new book coming out, Uncertain Ground. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, for the past 10 years, I've been writing essays and, and, and a little bit of journalism, thinking my way through these issues, thinking my way through through war um, and violence, you know, and there's everything from, a, you know, uh, a long essay on the, the history of ballistics, right, starting with, you know, the first convicted murderer in America, his weapon of choice was a gun, right? He came on the Mayflower and his weapon of choice was a gun to... Um, and the you know the armament he had, right, um, and the sort of scientific developments um, that led to current weaponry, right, and, and the violence that they're able to do, uh, to you know reflections on what it means to be a citizen soldier, uh, stories of Iraqi interpreters uh, who you know uh, were in combat and. Uh, one who came to America and one who was still stuck. Uh, more their stories interwoven with a, a powerful story from from World War One about one of the great heroes of of the war and his relationship to the immigrants and his and his battalion. Um, just a whole host of uh, it's it's ten years of me trying to think my way through what it means to be a citizen in relationship to these wars, basically. Uh, through your the work that you're doing with the writing program, I imagine that you're also encountering veterans like yourself uh, who love writing. Um, tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing with them before we run out of time, Phil. I mean, this is one of the great things about the Fairfield program. I mean, you have a, a, you have a broad mix of people. It's a low residency, so people can work while they're doing it. Um, we have funding for veterans, so about a third of the program uh, is veterans, which is great. It also means that, like, you know, None of the veterans are, have to be like the veteran in the program, right? It's just um, there's like a big cohort. Some of them are writing about military-related matters. Some of them aren't, uh, and yeah, it's it's been lots of fun. Um, very very interesting uh, uh, working with with a whole range of people on a whole range of topics. 
We started the uh, the conversation talking about uh, today is Veterans Day. I know uh, members of the public and, and veterans will say to each other, thank you for your service. Businesses offer discounts today to veterans and their families. My children's school is hosting a special assembly, inviting members uh, who serve, family members who serve to attend. But what do you want listeners who don't have a connection to the military to think about on this day, Phil? I'd just like them to think about the veterans in their communities, you know, and 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 I think that any of those any of those events are really good things to to attend, right? I think that, you know, when you come home from war, and we're talking about that sense of isolation, right, which is a constant, right? I mean, it goes back to, you know, Odysseus coming back to Ithaca and not recognizing it, and only his dog recognizes him, right? This is this is a constant in warfare, that sense of sort of you know, a, a community coming and welcoming people is so important, right? And and Veterans Day is one of those days that we've set aside, um, not just for veterans, but for the whole community to sort of say like, you know, war is not something that's just restricted to veterans. It is, you know, this is our country. Veterans represent us. We have a relationship to them. They're part of our community um, and we respect that. And And I think that that can be tremendously powerful. Phil Cly, again, author of Redeployment and Missionaries, and coming out next year, Uncertain Ground. What a pleasure to hear from you this hour, Phil. Thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. Today's show produced by Katie Pellico. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Thanks for listening. <laughs>